you, Father. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, guess what? I'm sharing with you today. I'm who you got. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So I think I'm getting a chair here. But um, <clears throat> there we go. All right. Um, <clears throat> just waiting a second for this chair. You know, it was um, when we were singing before, when we were saying, he takes care of the sparrows. Dun, dun. You know, we must have said that quite a number of times. Thank you. Um, it was funny because we said it so many times. And this week... Me and my daughter, Sophie, had a situation. My back door was open of my house. Beautiful day. I thought, let the breeze come in. Well, not only did the breeze come in, but a bird came in, <laughs> a sparrow. And if you don't know, that's like, ah, I don't know what to do like when that happens, right? Because that has happened to me before. Once it was a crow, so I was quite grateful. It was just a tiny, cute little sparrow. Anyway, this little sparrow was so distressed as it would be. And it was, it was in the corner. Now, it's, it's almost like a glass, glass doors, right? And they were open. And the little bird was just in the corner, about two feet, about that much away from the entrance of the door. And it only needed to go two feet, and it would have been out and free. But it was in the corner, and it was stressing out, and it kept hitting into the glass. And I was watching this poor little thing, and I'm thinking, mm, do I touch it? Like is this going to be like, a, you know, a Cinderella moment when she reaches out to the bird and it looks at her adoringly? Or is it going to peck my eyes out? I mean, once I was in, uh, once I got bit by a squirrel. So, I mean, I'm not good with nature. And <laughs> so I'm looking at this sparrow and I'm thinking, I'm like, God, I want to help this little troubled sparrow. So I just had this genius plan. I didn't touch it with my hands. I didn't want to freak the poor thing out. So I, ha I have a fly swatter. Right, So I'm approaching this poor little thing in the corner with a fly swatter. And I tell you, it probably thought, that's it. That big mammoth thing over there, meaning me, is going to crush me. But what I did was I just knelt down and I scooped it under the bird. And I couldn't believe it was letting me do it. It was looking at me. I mean, it was sort of resisting. But, and I slid it. I couldn't believe it was working. Two feet to the door. And it saw the door and it was like, Bye. And it flew right out, yay! So the, the sparrow got saved. But you know what that just made me think of during that? And maybe this is a word for someone here. We're like that little sparrow. And when we get into a hard place and bad things are going on and we feel like, ah, there's no escape, I can't get out, I can't get out. You know, sometimes you might think God is like, what's going on, God? And you might see this big swatter coming at you, meaning maybe things are happening around you that you just don't understand and that seem like trouble, but I feel like God is saying to his children and to those who are believing him, it might look like a big old swatter coming at you, but actually what God is saying to you is don't worry, it's going to come right under you and slide you to where you need to be and God is going to help you in your situation and you are not gonna be like that little bird. So that's a word for somebody. And if I were you, I would just say, yes, me, please. Cause I don't, I think that that one's got all our names on it. Okay, well today, today I wanted to talk about, does anyone here remember their favorite teacher ever? Do you have, raise your hand if you ever had a teacher and you thought I had a favorite teacher at school. Even if you were a terrible student, but you still had a favorite teacher. Lots of you, lots of you. Well, I had a favorite teacher too. And believe it or not, it was in the subject I liked least, which was math. 
And um, I just, just did, couldn't grasp it, you know? The things of math were so abstract to me. But Mrs. Noodleman, that was her name, Carol Noodleman, was wonderful because you know why? I just, you know, she was the kind of teacher that would take something so weird and abstract and, and make it so clear and wonderful and fun. I thought, how, how are you making fractions fun, Carol Noodleman? How are you doing it? She would throw a pizza party. She would slice that pizza up in all different ways, and she'd put it in front of little old me, bad math student, and say, would you like a quarter of the pizza? Or would you like an eighth? of the pizza. And let me tell you right then, my math problems were healed right then because I knew I wanted a quarter of that pizza and not an eighth of that pizza because I knew a quarter was bigger because I looked at the pizza. And that was the, the magic of Miss Noodleman. She just, she just made unclear things clear. Okay. Well, you know, God is a lot like that. He's exactly like that. Actually, he's better than Carol Noodleman. And I hope one day Carol Noodleman hears this, and this is a little homage to her. I hope she's still alive. That was many years ago. But anyway, but God is a great, great, the best teacher, isn't he? And um, there is lots and lots of abstract thoughts in the Bible, aren't there? Things that are just like, I don't get it. I'm not 100% sure what that means, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but in the Bible, God inspired the writers of the Bible to use things to help us understand, to help us understand really out there things. He used symbols, types and shadows, um, stories like parables. Remember all those parables that Jesus told? And what is a parable? A parable is a regular story about regular stuff, but it has a, a spiritual meaning. It helps us understand a spiritual principle in an easy palatable way. You're like, oh yeah, like me at that party with the pizza and fractions. I was like, I get it. I get it. And that's, that's a great teacher. A great teacher is, devises things like that and, and thinks of things. And God is that great teacher, the best teacher. Okay, I'm going to give you an example of what I mean from the Bible. And this isn't even exactly what I'm talking about, but I just thought, you know, think of this very abstract thought, um, being defiled by sin. I mean, you think about that and you could almost fall asleep because you're like, I don't know what that means, defiled by sin. Okay, so in the scriptures, what God got the prophet Ezekiel to do so that the people would understand what it meant to be defiled by sin is he said, okay, Ezekiel, what I want you to do is I want you to go into a public place where there's lots of people, where they all know you anyway. They know you're crazy, Ezekiel. Go out in there. And I want you to bake a loaf of bread. But I don't just want you to bake a loaf of bread. I want you to bake a loaf of bread over human poo. That's right. Light the poo. Cook the bread. Make sure it's really well infused with the odor, the smell, so that when you taste that bread, that's right, Ezekiel, you're going to be eating that bread. That's why it makes me laugh. There's this brand of bread called Ezekiel bread. I don't want to eat that bread. Don't want to eat that bread. Anyway. This bread that God asked Ezekiel to make was going to be cooked over poo. And this is the funny bit. You can read this story. Uh, it is in Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 12, in, think, in case you think I'm lying. And so he wanted him to make this bread really stinky and bad. And, and uh, God had said, make it with human poo. 
And, and Ezekiel said, please, can I just use cow poo? And God went, oh, all right, okay, right? So there, he had a little chat with God, and God was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Just make sure you eat it, and I want the people to see how you react when you eat this. And I want it to be a real visual of what defiling of sin is. I want it, you to know, I want the people to know what I'm experiencing, God, what God is experiencing when he sees one of his own just filled with a life of sin and sin all, you stank, you stink, you stink like what you're in, you know? And that's an example of God being a teacher, poor Ezekiel, right? I don't want to be that teacher. I'll be like, I'll be Miss Noodleman. I don't want to be that teacher who has to eat that bread. I'll eat the pizza instead. But that's, that's what I mean by God um, helping to clear up very abstract, out there, not very clear things, okay? Okay, and it involved our, our visual. We were watching poor Ezekiel eat this bread. We were smelling it and thinking, poor guy, he's got to eat that bread. And poor Ezekiel, he was probably eating it the way I used to eat broccoli when I was a little kid. You know, my mother would make me sit there till all the broccoli was gone, even if it was like two hours. Poor me. Anyway, the whole Bible basically is, is about God's favorite subject. And that favorite subject of God is us. We are his favorite subject. But more specifically, it's about us having a relationship with him because of his son, Jesus. That is God's favorite, favorite Subject. You are going to see that through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, that, that is his favorite subject. Okay, so the idea of uh, relationship with God, that can be an abstract thought to people, even to us as Christians, right? I mean, how do you have a relationship with an invisible God that you can't see, you can't seem to hear him, and you can't seem to touch him, and I would put this to you as the answer. You have a relationship with God the same way you have a relationship with a person that you can see, that you can hear, and that you can touch. Pretty much. Pretty much it's the same. You know, and it's not rocket science. If you want a relationship, any relationship, I'm talking friendship, marriage, boyfriend, girlfriend, any kind of relationship, if you want it to work, there's three basic things you're going to find in all the books, in all the relationship books. These three basic things, you will find them in any of those books, articles, whatever. And the first thing is you need some sort of connection with a person. And that is what I call the hello moment, okay? Now, me and Andy, this year, in August, we have been married 29 years. Can you believe that? 29 years. Where did that go? I can't even believe it. But I'll tell you when it started. It started by a little lake at a summer camp when this weird English guy came up to me in America and he went, hello. And I was like, and I said, hello. And that's where it started. And from that point, look at the blossoming of what a hello does. I have five kids, a dog, all of you, loads of congregations. I mean, just life has just sprung up from what? Hello. Look what a hello moment does. So we have, to, we have to have that connection with a person. Okay, next thing, the second thing in the books you're going to find is time spent together. You got to show up. You got to hang out, date, be present. I don't know what they call it, the cool name for it these days is, but, you know, that's in my good old fashion. You got to hang out. You got to just 
have some time where you're sitting in a room together. You know what I heard this week, and I thought this is quite amazing. You always hear the signs that your relationship's going bad. Well, I heard a guy talk about, he was a psychologist, the signs that your relationship are going good. And one of those relationship good things is that you are able to sit in a room with somebody that you're in a relationship and not say anything and just be completely at ease, comfortable, just saying nothing. Just being there, being present, okay? That's the second thing, show up. That's the second thing. That, that, okay, so we have hello, show up, be there. Third thing, communication. We knew that one was coming, right? Because that's in every book and about marriage and therapy for marriage and whatever. You need interaction. You need to talk. You need to show your emotions to that person. Maybe be a little vulnerable if it's a deep relationship, like a husband and a wife, right? You need to be able to bear your heart a little. There needs to be communication. So hello moment, show up, you know, be there. And there needs to be communication, you know, and, and being vulnerable and showing emotions. Well, these aren't new ideas about how to make a relationship work. Um, but they are in the Bible. Um, and let me just tell you, these aren't just good ideas, right? Oh, it's a good idea to say hello. It's a, you know, to, to start the relationship. It's a good idea to have communication. It's not just a good idea. They are God ideas, okay? God ideas. You know, I love when people in the world try to take credit for things that are already in the Bible for that thousands of years, right? And they're like, I have discovered this wonderful thing that, you know, when they say it. And I'm like, I've been doing that, you know, forever because it's in Proverbs, you know? <laughs> you know, something like that. So these are not just good ideas. These are God ideas. God instated these things to make a relationship well. Um, Okay, so restoring relationship with God after that whole Adam and Eve fiasco, you know, we don't talk about that, right? Um, what happened in the garden which separated us from God. Getting our relationship back with God was always the plan. That's, that's the plan, right? And him being the best teacher in the whole wide world, he wanted to show us visually what that would entail. And he did in the scripture. There is visual and sensual, meaning all of our senses involved, teaching in the scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, of God showing us how to have a relationship with him. And he included so many visuals and hands-on experiences that involved all of our senses that were, were going to help us to help people understand what he means by being in a relationship with him. And one way that he showed us how to have a relationship with him was, was through something that we call altars. Altars, which are mentioned in the scripture around 400 times. You know, if somebody says something to you once, you could almost miss it. If somebody says something to you twice, you kind of turn around and take notice. If somebody says something to you 400 times, I think it's worth looking into. Do you think? Okay. So 400 mentions of altars. Now, our modern understanding of an altar would be, let's say, in a more traditional church building, they would normally build one in the church, which would look like a kind of a big table kind of thing. And it's usually at the front of a church building inside, like it would be like about here. We'll pretend it's this table right here. It's usually a lot more elaborate and whatever. And basically, it's like where they put the Bible, they, you know, a big 
big church Bible, or they do communion at this table like we did today, although we didn't do it at a table. We just kind of did it on our laps. That's okay. Anyway, so that's our modern understanding of an altar, just like a big table at the front of the church. But altars in the Bible teach us so much about what a relationship with God is meant to be and what's involved in having relationship with God. And although we don't build physical altars anymore like the people of the Bible did, and we're going to talk about those, we still need to build spiritual altars in our lives to be in relationship with him, to have a, a wonderful, lively, beautiful, thriving relationship with him. Okay, so what is an altar in the Bible? An altar in the Bible, in scripture, is very simply this. So if you're writing notes, it's such a simple definition I'm going to give you. It's a place of connection with God. It's a meeting place between divinity and humanity. A place of interaction between God and a person. That is what an altar is in the Bible. It's that meeting place of connection where divinity meets humanity. Now, what it, looks, what it looked like in the Bible when they would say someone like would build an altar... It was a raised area, usually in a house of worship, but sometimes not. Sometimes it was just out in the great outdoors. Um, usually like a table with a flat top where people would honor God with offerings. Very ancient altars, like the kind in the scripture, would simply have been constructed with dirt and stones. Just stuff that was around them. Okay? Now... The meaning of the word altar in Hebrew, and the reason why I'm going to the Hebrew, don't think, oh, here she goes again with the Hebrew Jewish stuff. The reason why I'm going that back to the, to the Hebrews, because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the first mention of an altar is in the book of Genesis, and and. It was written in Hebrew. So I want to know what the Hebrew mindset was thinking of when they said altar. Not necessarily our Western meaning of what an altar is. Because to us, it doesn't have a lot of meaning. To it. It's a table where we just showcase a nice Bible. But what were the Hebrews thinking? And I'll tell you what they were thinking. It comes from a word... Um, that means altar in Hebrew called mizbach. You don't have to know how to spell it. You don't even have to remember it. What, but what you do need to remember is what it meant. It was a place of slaughter for food or sacrifice, right? A place of slaughter. You know what slaughter is, right? Okay. Where they would kill something. Sometimes they would just use things like um, foods and things that they would offer to God. But more often than not, it was an animal. Okay, and from that word mizbach, there's a root word in that, which actually is sacrifice. It means it, it is, it's a type of sacrifice. So, so we have the mizbach, which is the altar, but in that word is this word for sacrifice, which, which is zebach. You could almost hear it. sounds the same, mizbach, zebach. And what that was was a sacrifice which established communion or connection between God and the one sacrificing to him, okay? So that's what was happening. We have, some, we have an altar that was made probably in the ancient times of, of dirt and stones, and we have the zebach, the thing on the altar that is going to be offered. And this thing is, is bringing connection and communion. Uh, communion is another word for connection. And we did that today, and that was not planned. 
between, so there's a connection, a communion between God and the one who is sacrificing. Now, altars and sacrifice in scripture go hand in hand, kind of like fish and chips, okay? You really don't say, oh, I, I really want some fish. I mean, that's just weird, isn't it, by English standards. We say, I want fish and chips, right? Okay. Well, when you saw an altar, you knew sacrifice, okay? And we tend, with our Western thinking, and this is just, you know, the way it is because of, you know, the way our languages, I guess. But we think of sacrifice and we immediately think suffering. I don't want sacrifice. This lady's going to talk about sacrifice. I'm given enough. I have just, I, I don't have any more money. I don't have any more time. I don't have any more anything. Don't, I can't, no more. <laughs> right? Okay. Well, we, so we think sacrifice, suffering. I don't want to suffer anymore, right? And that can be the case in, in Scripture that there is suffering involved. But in the Bible, one meaning of sacrifice, and the one I want to talk about today, is a sacrifice known in Hebrew as korban. Okay? Korban. And it means to draw near. It means something which draws close. That's what I want to talk about today. That's the kind of sacrifice I want to talk about today. The purpose of that kind of sacrifice was to bring people closer to God. Okay, and that's in the Old Testament, but that's a New Testament principle. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. All right, so that's a principle in the New Testament, even though we see it in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, it's one of those examples, those types, those shadows, those symbols of what the New Testament is saying, that if you draw close to God with korban, this kind of offering, that he will draw close to you. Okay, so there were people in Scripture who built altars. And why did they build them? Now, I mentioned there's 400 mentions. I'm going to talk about 400. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I picked three, okay? So, yay, three. Only three out of 400. Woo. All right, so the first guy, let's talk about him, Noah. Uh, you can read about this in Genesis 8, uh, verses 20 to 21. This is the first mention of an altar in the whole of Scripture. And what happened was he, the whole ark thing finished. Uh, the whole, you know, it being on the water and he's sending out the dove and the dove comes back and there's all this water. Finally, it came to rest on the top of a mountain, Mount Ararat. And it's rested now and it's time to open the door. You know, the very first thing that Noah did, very first thing that he does is he builds an altar and he sacrifices to God. Let me just read it to you. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and there he sacrificed as burnt offerings the animals and birds that had been approved, that had been approved for that purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, this is God saying to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood, I will never again destroy all living things. Okay, imagine this. The first thing Noah does as he enters his new life on this very first new day, he remembers and he includes God and the Lord was pleased. Um, and the smell was pleasing to God. Did you know honor smells good to God? 
Okay, next guy, Abraham. Um, you know, God said to Abraham, get up all your stuff, pick it all up, get it all, get all your people together and go. Very vague. It was very vague. He just said, get up and go that way. And Abraham was like, well, what's, what's the plan, God? What's the, there was, God had a plan, but he wasn't revealing all. Anyway, after doing everything that God told him to do and coming into the land, which God directed him, he builds an altar and he sacrifices. But that's not the first time with Abraham. We see that he continues this practice all along his journey. And we see his communion with God all along the way. Abraham had such a heart to be in communication with God. He, he wanted to be in continual communication from God. He needed to be because he didn't know what he was. To, he, it was a vague journey. God said, go that way. Okay, so I better be listening out and having connection and communion with God on this journey that I'm not exactly sure. Sounds a lot like our journey of life because, you know, I can't even tell you what I'm going to be doing at 10 o'clock tonight. I mean, I don't know, right? You don't know. None of us really know. You might make plans, but hey, you know, it's who knows, right? You want to know something? We need to be in connection and communion with God. Just like Abraham on his journey, we need to be doing that too. Because our journey is just as vague in life, isn't it? We make plans, but plans can be changed by many things. So we need to be in that constant communication on our journey. And you want to know something? Abraham's heart was so into this communing with God, and it's one of the reasons that he got this beautiful title by God himself, where he was called the friend of God. Who doesn't want to be called God's friend? By God himself. Let me read that to you, Isaiah 41.8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, and did you know that in some translations where it says, Abraham, my friend, it's Abraham who loved me. Isn't that beautiful? See, a heart that loves God and seeks communion with him, it, a heart that loves God seeks communion with him is what I'm saying, okay? If you love God, you want to spend time with him. You seek that communi communion with, with God. And it was evident in Abraham's life, and God knew it, because God sees the heart. He knows why we do everything we do. And he saw, he saw in Noah that Noah wanted to bring honor to God on this new day. Before I do anything, God, I want to honor you and thank you. You got us through this hard time. God, I don't know what's coming next, Lord. This is Abraham saying, but I'm going to listen for your voice. I'm going to have communion with you. And then I'm going to talk about Jacob. Genesis 35, 7. Okay, Jacob, you know, he was running from his brother Esau because he stole his birthright. You remember that? And so he's running for his life, you know, and, and it points out in the scripture that Jacob didn't really have a great love for God or an understanding of God until he's tired now. He's running and he's trying to get away from Esau, right? So he gets a big rock. And he lays down like his head on this rock. Do you remember before what I said that ancient um, alt altars were made? Excuse me here. Ancient altars were made of rock and whatever <clears throat> was around, right? <clears throat> so Jacob, he's he's laying on this rock, completely unaware. And then he has this amazing dream where he he sees this ladder going from heaven to earth and angels descending and ascending. And he wakes up and he's like, whoa. 
God was in this place, and I didn't even know it. I wasn't even aware of the presence of God. And then he begins to call God like his uh, ancestors before him. He says that he's no longer just the God of Abraham, but he's my God now too. So he had this realization. And what I love about this is, you know, God is so eager to commune with us. He didn't even wait till Jacob built an altar. Because what happened was afterward, he used that stone that he had his head on. And he used it as part of the altar that he built with God to commemorate that wonderful moment he had with God. Where God woke him up and changed the trajectory of his life. He was running for his life. When God got him. And then, all of a sudden now, he's, he's not just running for his life. He's running for God. And he's doing what God has set out for his life and, and, and going with the plan of God. He just changed his whole life. And God couldn't even wait for him to build that altar. He's like, one rock's enough. That'll do for me. You're going to have an experience with me tonight. And I am ready to have communion with you, Jacob. And that's how God is for us. He's, you know, he is so willing that for any little effort we make to connect with him, God is. You think he's like, what, you didn't have time for me yesterday or the day before? You think I'm going to listen now? No, that's not God's attitude. I tell you, God's attitude is when you're, you know, maybe you've not been spending a lot of time at, at your altar before God having communion. The minute you say, Lord, he's like, yeah, yes, he's there. He wants to be there for you. He's like in that moment, you know, one rock was enough for him of Jacob. He's like, yeah, that'll do, you know. With those men that I mentioned who built those altars, it was a heart thing that caused them to build those altars. Thankfulness, knowing they needed God. They loved God. They wanted to honor him um, because God did a significant work in their life and they wanted to build it. It was a heart thing. Just remember, these guys were not under law. There was no law. Law came with Moses. Moses didn't come yet. So they did what they did out of pure heart emotion for God out of pure love for him. And you know, you, if you want a vibrant and exciting relationship with God, then you have to look at those who had successful relationships with God. And you need to take note, okay? We need to look at people who are successful at what we want to be successful at. People do it in business. They do it in all manner of things. They read books by Richard Branson and Elon Musk because they want to be successful and think like these people. Well, these people had the best relationships with God that like were ever Ever. We need to emulate things they did. And some things they did was, one, they desired to please God and know him more, but they knew that desire was not enough. I mean, if I went and asked anybody, do you want a better relationship with God? Yeah, that would be nice. I would like that. Yeah. It's not enough to just desire. Then they took the time and the effort the effort to build that altar. What? That was not easy. Sticks and rocks. Then not only the Mizbach, they had to build the altar. They had to get the Zabach. They had to get that thing on there. You know what it was like sometimes probably? They had to kill something. That can't be easy. I mean, I don't kill stuff, right? But I can, if, if I look at like, if I, if I was looking at a lamb right here, I'd be, and I had to eat that lamb because let's say there was like a famine or something and that thing was going to be my food. I've already told my children we're going to die because I'm not killing it. Okay, <laughs> I said, you want to kill it, you can kill it. I'm just going to lay here and just wait to see Jesus because I'm not killing it, okay? If that's a hard thing to do. So, like, effort had to be made, you know? Um, so they had to take the time, take the effort. They had to have that hello moment with God. And then they had to show up, and then they had to have that communication 
with God through their offering. And it was two-way because God responds to altars. He responds. Noah, what happened? God smelled that. And he was like, oh, that smells so good, right? And, and it was that smell and that thing that caused God to say, hey, I'm never going to destroy the earth again by a flood. You know, I make a covenant right now. That made God, the smell of that honoring offering moved the heart of God. With Abraham, Abraham was able to hear God's direction for his journey. And Jacob, well, it changed the whole, like I said, changed the whole path of his life. He was running from something and now he was running with God, doing the will of God. Changed his whole life. Now, that was before the law. So God eventually gets very specific about altars in the Bible, okay? And with Moses, it all changed. And um, uh, he commanded Moses to build something that was like a temple. It wasn't the temple because, remember, they were on a journey through the wilderness. So they were like, it had to be movable. So God told him to build something, and it was the tent of meeting. So it was kind of like a movable temple, right? They could pack it up, move, set it up again. So it was called the tent of meeting. Now, did you ever have something where it says the name is on the tin? I wonder what was going to happen in that tent, of meeting. Hmm, I wonder. They were going to meet with God, <laughs> right? I mean, it, God is so good because you don't have to be a rocket scientist to discover what he's saying. It's called the tent of meeting because they were going to meet with God in that tent. Yay. Okay. Now, I'm going to talk about, because I said that he got quite specific about altars, God. And he told Moses to build a specific altar, which we're going to talk about right now, and it's called the brazen altar. Now, let me describe to you. This altar was outside of that tent of meeting. So you had this big tent of meeting here. I mean, it was big, okay? Uh, and, and outside of the tent of meeting was this thing called a brazen altar, and it was like a big giant barbecue, basically. It was like a big box-type thing, and it had like... Um, it was flat on top, and there would be fire in it, right? There was going to be fire, in it, and you'd put what you were going to cook on the top of it. It was a big, giant barbecue, okay? That's what it looked like, and that's what it was like. Um, so it was outside the tent. You couldn't get inside this tent unless you did that bit. But let me explain also. In this whole narrative where Moses and, and the children of Israel, I just need you to know that when you're thinking of how does this apply to my life, you are the priest, you are the priest in the story. The priest is a symbol of you and me. Because in the New Testament, we are called the priests of the new covenant. So the priest is you, okay? Not your common average person could get inside this tent of meeting. They could only get as far as this little open area right outside the barbecue, okay? The brazen altar. Only priests went on the inside of this tent of meeting. And that's me and you, okay? We're the priests, okay? <clears throat> All right. Okay, so this was a very special altar, this brazen altar. And it was a first of its kind because God himself, right? This, this is an amazing story, which you can read for yourself in Leviticus 9. But God himself 
fire came out of heaven and lit this. God lit it with his own fire. There was nobody out there rubbing sticks together to make a fire. God did it for them. So it was a very special altar. And I'm just going to put it out there, what it represents, the symbol that God was showing us, what it represents. It represents our heart when Christ comes into our lives. It's like the lights are turned on. You ever hear the expression, you know, like you see a house and, you know, uh, well, no, I guess that doesn't work. I was going to say the lights are on, but nobody's home. Well, there's no lights on because nobody's home. What happens is God turns the lights on and the light, he lights our heart with, with Jesus, the life of Christ in our life. And it, it just ignites. Okay, so he comes into our life. You also need to know this, that the thing that they're going to burn on top of that, that lamb, that because there would be lambs burnt, burnt on top of that, right, to, to cover our sins because the blood of a lamb could only cover our sin. But what that lamb was meant to visualize, what we're meant to, to know today, what that means, is that that was Jesus. That lamb was Jesus on top of that thing there. All right, and he is the sacrifice. And listen, there's no getting in that tent without coming through that brazen altar. That is our hello moment. That is our hello, hello God, I need you. Hello God, it's me, Gina. Hello, Gina. And it comes through. That's the first port of call into getting into that tent of meeting to meet with God is you come through Jesus. We need Jesus to get to God. That's the way it is. We were sinful. We smelled like Ezekiel's stinky bread. That was us. We were stinky bread. I was stinky bread Gina. That was my name. <laughs> That's what they call me. But one day I met Jesus and I wasn't stinky bread Gina anymore. <laughs> you know what I was then? I was clean, forgiven, washed in the blood of Jesus, Gina. And that was my hello moment with God. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. One thing about this brazen altar, God lit it, but he said to the priests, now it's your job. You never let that fire go out, okay? Keep making that fire. It's up to you, priests, to make that fire go. I did my bit. I lit it. You keep it. You keep it going. But you want to know something? God is so good. He wanted to help the people out, to, to give them reason to keep this and, and a purpose to keep this fire lit. It wasn't just, just do it, find the wood, you know, just go for it. I mean, that had to be hard as well because they were in the desert. Where are you going to find trees? That's one of the things about a desert. There's not a lot of trees. But they found the trees. They went to the effort. They kept it lit. Sometimes it takes a little bit of effort, okay, on our part to keep that fire lit. Okay, but this is how God helped them out. On this altar, this brazen altar, this big old barbecue lit by God, right? Twice a day, every day, there would be an animal sacrifice at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. And God called those two sacrifices that happened every day, twice a day, morning and evening, day in and day out. He called those the morning and the evening sacrifice. Nice, easy names to remember, right? Why every day? Why twice a day? You see, right here, God is giving us a key here on how to grow your relationship with him and how to keep those fires lit. 
What he's saying is, he's not saying, oh, you must meet with me at nine and three every single day. That is the law. As a matter of fact, what he's, that was the law for them. For us, it's not a law. But what he is saying to us is this. Show up. Have a moment in your day. Include him in the fabric of your day. Knit him in to your day. His suggestion is morning and evening. But what works for you? Maybe lunchtime on a park bench. Maybe sitting in your car. Maybe your drive to work. Maybe your couch is your altar. Maybe it's your bed. When you wake up in the morning and you're all comfy in there and you're there at your altar. Okay? He's saying, make me part of the fabric of your day. And he's saying, meet me with me often. You know, the scriptures say in the New Testament, pray without ceasing. Does that mean he wants you to pray every minute of the day, like be weird and just every second? I'm not praying, oh no. You know, no, he's saying pray often. It doesn't have to be three-hour prayers. It could be one minute. If you read the book of Nehemiah, he prays like two, three-sentence prayers. Like he's going into the king to ask something, and he says, oh, Lord, I need your help. <laughs> That's a prayer. <laughs> now, I'm not saying just let your prayers be these tiny little things. I'm saying make time for God. Hey, if you don't have a time with God that you spend in the week, set five minutes, five minutes once a day. If that's too much for you, set one minute. If you know that one minute is sustainable, or maybe a specific day in the week where you say, okay, I have time on this day. I'm going to sit for 10 minutes. I'm going to read my Bible and pray and talk to God on this day. You know, make time. Knit him into your day. God gives us that key right here to tell us. Okay? <clears throat> okay. Okay. Now, listen, imagine twice a day having to come to this altar and, and, and the priest has to kill this thing, put it on the altar. Imagine the, the blood, imagine the, the effort, the noise, the sound of the sheep. I mean, I put myself in the place of that and I'm like, uh, uh, how horrible that moment must be. But let me just tell you one thing. What happens is then that lamb is put on there and it's cooking on that altar. Did you ever walk through your neighborhood and smell a barbecue? And what, what happens? You're just walking, minding your own business, and all of a sudden you go, someone's having a barbecue. And you can't stop sniffing in like that. And you're like, where is it, where is it, where is it? That's, that's what happens when, when, when we come to God and make him part of the fabric of our life. We're no longer stinky bread, Ezekiel, put your name in the slot. Bread. We're not that guy anymore, stinky bread. No, we're not. But the Bible says this. It says... 2 Corinthians 2.15, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising to God. When we spend time with God, he smells the sweet fragrance of Jesus burning on the altar of your life, of your heart. Okay. Um, now, at the very same time, and you know what? Nobody put a clock up for me, so I guess I could just talk forever. But I'm guessing my time's nearly up. Is, does anyone know how... how? What? One minute? It's up. Oh, it's pretty much over. Okay. Okay. What I want to say to you is you could have, uh, there was more I wanted to talk about. We'll have to save that for another day. But let me just tell you, do you want your life to be honoring to God? Do you want connection with God? Many of you already have had that hello moment with God. 
You've already said hello. But many of you also, and I know this because I talk to so many Christians with problems and situations and things going on in their life. And the first thing I ask them always is, what's your relationship with Jesus like? And they usually get a little embarrassed and a little, you know, well, I, you know, I don't have a lot of time. And, and I say to them first, before I even deal with their issue, is why don't we deal with that issue first and make the altar of your life something beautiful, something sweet smelling, so you're not stinky bread Ezekiel anymore. <laughs> I never say that. But you know what? We, we want to smell like the sweet fragrance of Christ. And that's what God sees for our relationship with him. Now, there's more things. I'm not going to talk about these things because I have run out of time. Like even the communication part, there's another altar on the inside of this tent, and it's called the altar of incense. And that altar is going at the same time, twice a day, while these other offerings, morning and evening offerings are going, this incense is going, and that represents our prayer and our worship. And we are to come to God in prayer and in worship as well to get to our relationship with him. And can I tell you, sometimes I see people and they're just standing there really stiff and rigid during worship. Did you know one of the meanings of the word worship is to kiss? You know, and that makes me, you know, it makes me think of in the Bible, Mary, who poured the oil on Jesus' feet. Do you remember that when she broke that jar of expensive oil and poured it on Jesus? It, Jesus was so impressed with that and so moved by that. And he said to everyone who was annoyed with her, because they were at a dinner party when this was happening, he said, listen, this woman has not stopped kissing my feet, wiping her, my, my feet with her hair, and, and, and just, just weeping. There was snot. There was tears. There was emotion, and Jesus was moved by it. That's what that altar represents, that altar of incense. But I'm done right now because I know i got to go now, and I don't want to keep you longer than you need. What I'm just saying is please, please make the effort. It's not, the hello moment is what saves you getting Jesus in your life. The other stuff doesn't save you, right? But what it does is it improves your relationship with Jesus and grows it. And as a Christian, that is what we need to be doing, growing our relationship with God the way God says, the God way that he says. They're not just good ideas, they're God ideas. Now, is there anyone here, I can, this would be so unfair if I didn't offer you this, who doesn't, who never had that hello moment with Jesus? You don't know Jesus. You never said, Jesus, I need you. I want a relationship with God. Is there anyone here who has never, uh, as a matter of fact, close your eyes, bow your heads. Cl everyone just close your eyes and bow your heads. Now no one's looking around. Is there anyone here who would raise their hand and say, I need to know Jesus. I would like to have a relationship with Jesus. I need that hello moment with God. I need that hello moment with God. Is there anyone? Wonderful. Well, that's beautiful that you all know Jesus. You can, you can lift your heads now. There's no one here. But if, if you didn't, if you don't know Jesus, you can go home. And on your own time, you can sit there and say, Jesus, I need you. Come into my life. But then you need to go further than that. It's more than just desire of, yeah, I want a good relationship with God. It's, a, it's then about doing something, showing up, being present, and then having that communication with him, making time to be with Jesus. Amen. Wonderful. Well, <laughs> amen. Let me just uh, close us in a word of prayer. And um, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Father, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for every person present here. I want to thank you, Father, that every one of these people came out to be here to show you honor and to be present with you today, Father. And I know you honor that. In, you honor honor 
in people. And I thank you that you bless each and every household. I thank you, Father, that your blessing be upon each person in this place. May they go in grace and may they go with, with favor and blessing upon their lives and the lives of their families. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Be blessed. Thank you, Gina. Come on. Let's show our appreciation.